0: So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, February the 24th and this is Backyard Beekeeping questions and answers episode number 197. I'm Frederick Dunn and this is the way to be. So I'm glad you're here. Welcome. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and we'll have all the topics listed in order. And some links including today's shout out, which I'll mention later. If you want to know how you can submit your own question, please go to my main website which is thewaytobe.org, and there's a page also titled the way to Be, and there's a form you can fill it out what else we have a fellowship by the way if you want to talk about bees and you just can't wait and you need to find people 24 7 that are talking about backyard beekeeping go to facebook groups the way to bee fellowship and there you'll get accepted if you tell them that you discovered it learn about it from this video and they'll let you right in and uh you can start talking to anybody at any time about anything related to bees no politics so what do we have going on outside well as you can see from the opening we have a lot of snow coming down right now thank goodness for the bird seed and all the birds coming to it so i can take some pictures of things and have some fun fun because the bees are not coming out it's 21.6 degrees fahrenheit outside which is minus six celsius and we're getting wind gusts so it's not even calm if it were calm that would be bad enough but no we have 29.3 mile per hour wind gusts which is 47 kilometers per hour and it is 75 percent relative humidity so it's down from yesterday yesterday we had some rain the weather's weird we've had the lowest snowfall here in the state of pennsylvania since the 1800s so very low snowfall we've had some rain though, and I guess there's more coming moderate warm-up, but these are tough times for bees now we're going to find out if we really configured our hives well if we left them enough and uh, see how tough those bees are going to be so I know I've lost two colonies out of 23 for sure and a weather like this up and down it's anybody's guess but they had lots of food reserves still above them so keep on your bees, let's see what's going on We're going to start right off with Linus from Gray Eagle, Minnesota. When a hive dies out, do the drone... When a hive dies out due to a drone layer, is it true if you use those frames again, a queen will only lay drones in those cells laid by a drone worker? If so, what should I do with the frames? Well, when it comes to Laying workers, and it's true they can only produce drones, they tend to lay those even in worker brood cells. And as long as they're doing that, I can understand that someone might think that because uh, they developed drones in there that they would smell different, that the queen somehow wouldn't use that cell again. But I don't know of anything that supports that uh, claim that once they've been used for drones in worker cells that the queen wouldn't later, once it's queen right again, meaning it has a queen that's laying Uh, that she wouldn't also lay workers there. The difference is drone cells that are made for drones. So there is a difference. When your queen right and your queen is laying eggs, uh, she'll select a non-fertilized egg to produce, to put it in a drone cell, which is larger than a worker cell. And then when she does that, it is a haploid. And so that means it's going to produce a male, the drone. And then as soon as that male hatches out on the third day, the uh, nurse bees are going to start taking care of that. And those large cells are definitely selected by Queens for the drones. Now when you lose a queen and uh, we know that the workers have the ability to activate their ovaries. And uh, as soon as the queen pheromone is gone, that uh, may start to some degree, but by the time they've passed their third week, that's a rough benchmark. So 21 days later, you could have a laying drone they don't have as many ovaries as the queens do but they have enough to, to create a problem and a lot of workers can start doing this and they'll start laying eggs in every cell they find because they're just ridiculous and you'll find eggs uh, stuck to the interior wall of the cell not all the way to the bottom and often multiple eggs at a time And because they're laying them in every cell, they're non-selective because uh, it doesn't matter male, you know, they're not doing male or female, they're just doing males and it's a survival mode. It's a ditch effort for a colony to send its genetics out into the world and they do that by producing drones. So this is where, these are smaller drones actually. So when the eggs are laid in a worker cell and if they do develop, which sometimes that's even a question whether or not they can support that because the colony's in decline, Um, When they do, it's what we call bullet cells. So when you see the face of the brood cell, when it's capped over, it'll be a really strongly convex cap. That's why they start calling them bullet cells because really isn't enough room there for a a male bee to develop in a worker cell. So they extend out further lengthwise, but you get a smaller diameter drone. That's why sometimes we see these little runty drones around when you've lost a queen and we've got a laying worker. So there's a lot going on, but if it's a worker size cell, they'll reuse those later as worker cells. And uh, of course the drone, the larger cells and the worker cells and drone cells are interchangeable for stored resources like honey, for example. So they use it for a lot of different things. So there's that. Question number two comes from Vladimir from Worcester, Massachusetts. I live in Swampsgate for a short time, by the way. I read that some beekeepers are feeding pollen substitute now to stimulate brood production. Is now a good time to feed pollen substitute in New England? And will that create a swarming problem in spring? Okay, so, um, if you're going to feed a pollen substitute inside your hive, and it comes in the form of pollen patties, I just happen to have some here. This is two of them stuck together, but that's what they look like. These are pollen patties and there were studies done on which ones were the most effective and they have to have real pollen in them. uh, If they want to rank among the best. Randy Oliver did some great studies at scientific beekeeping. Global patties came out on top so uh, and then Hive Alive uh, also has pollen patties now and they had global patties make those for them so there are some top tier top performing patties but the reason you have to really think about why you want to use them Um, if you use them in the fall it's questionable whether or not they even help the bees it also gets some pushback from a lot of people that are in colder climates since we're talking about Massachusetts and the Northeastern United States Uh, if we start giving our bees a lot of solids going into wintertime uh then they need to defecate so they need to be able to get out of the hive and if we get long extended winter periods and they can't do that and then bees that end up kind of stuck and then they soil themselves or soil the hive which is the last thing they want to do but if they do that uh, that creates a big mess and it's hard on the bees so that's why warmer climates can get away with it that's why i'm kind of making this distinction but if you are trying to build up your brood Uh, more than the environment would provide for so that's kind of the key people that are doing bee centric beekeeping or they're trying to follow the darwinian beekeeping approach Uh, we're trying to identify the colonies within our apiary that are adapted to the rhythm of the local environment and the pollen resources and everything that they provide and when nature provides it so that's one side of the house that results in smaller colonies overall generally speaking uh, they could be healthier, and uh, but you're not going to get a huge, you know, honey production season out of them. And that's why this becomes kind of a distinction. So it depends on why you're keeping bees and what you want them for in the end. So now let's go to the other side. You have bees in your backyard, but you're a sideliner and you're hoping to get honey from them. So to do that, you need a workforce and the workforce needs to be advanced. It needs to be ready. When the nectar flow really starts and when the pollen is available in the environment which is the natural source for brood buildup so those global patties have proven to really boost colony production because we're bringing pollen and protein in and i did ask about the pollen content in those and the global patties and they just say california pollen they don't even tell us which plants it comes from but even not knowing what the pollen source is the testing has been done to show that they did have a benefit and they boosted brood and those tests of course were done in controlled areas where they had bees that were given the pollen substitute colonies that were not they were under the same climate conditions and they were in the same apiaries so the studies are pretty good so if you really want to advance them then it kind of goes against uh, this other part here will that create a swarming problem in spring strong colonies swarm so you're going to have to keep ahead of them and so that's the whole point we don't want them to be pressured to swarm if you had a brand new queen for example going into winter or late in the summer if you requeen mid-summer something like that uh, the tendency is for those queens not to swarm the first year you get a lot of swarming the second year i've noticed with my own bees and uh, so by expanding your colonies just in time ahead of the nectar flow so when you super up in time because you are going to build a lot more brood more brood more bees earlier more bees earlier more pollen more pollen more brood and so it goes and then you end up with these uh, large colonies which actually would not be supported by the environment so it it just depends on what you want out of your bees but even people in my area that have boosted their colonies with all kinds of feeds um, can end up with larger populations of bees in the hives in the hives and then uh, you get a lot of honey out of them What's a lot of honey? Some people report a couple hundred pounds of honey per hive. So I can tell you that for me right here, a couple hundred pounds uh, for a single hive of bees has not happened for me, Uh, but I've never boosted them like that. So if you want to use them, those are patties I recommend. Um, Global Patties came out as top performers. I would not, since we're on the topic, I would not suggest putting dry pollen substitute Inside your hive. So when we get some decent days where the weather warms up and the bees are foraging and flying uh, As we get into March uh, my magic time here in Northwest, Pennsylvania Is according to my records throughout the year is March 12th So and of course Weather can play and can change everything in some areas Everything's early right now. They're talking to the farmers in our area, especially the grape farmers and uh, their vineyards are budding too soon so if they're budding and also for the fruit growers you can lose your entire crop if uh, this warm weather causes things to bud I happen to know right now that putting pollen sub in my hives um, allows them to utilize pollen that they cannot access in the environment because it's just too cold to fly out for it however if we had a warm day there's plenty of pollen out there right now already coming from trees so it's just a matter of what you want to do but uh we have dramatic weather swings going on right now so if you want a constant and you want a predictable crop of bees so we're looking at livestock and you really have to you know pollinate your orchards or whatever it is you want to do early in spring uh the pollen patties work so get them google find them Anyway, next question, number three, comes from Doug from Mobile, Alabama. What are your thoughts on running nine frames in a 10 frame deep box? My bees make it nearly impossible to take out my first frame without rolling bees. It can also be a challenge to get all 10 frames back in with all the propolis. Okay, so here's the thing why do people do uh, nine frames in a 10 frame box for beginners for starting Um, the thing is often people do that in their supers and that's because the thinking is you get more honey uh, with less wax work so if you space out those frames that's why you'll often see spacers that go into your uh, supers now this is supers not the brood box and i'll explain why there's a difference When you use it on your supers, um, you get deeper cells, more honey, and it works better in the uncapping machines and things like that. For the backyard beekeeper, an uncapping machine is not that big a deal. So the other thing is it creates deep cells that stick out well beyond the face. So if you're cutting it off, you get a lot more cap wax and things like that to harvest and you can even up your frames. Now, again, as described here, once you've done that, if you've put you know nine frames in a 10 frame box and they draw out those full cells of uh you know beeswax comb then uh, you'll have to cut them back down if you want to fit them into another box that is also for deep frames that uh, you had 10 in so if you're doing nines in a 10 frame box you're going to have to kind of continue to do that with all of your deep boxes so here's the other part of that because i know some new beekeepers are watching this and you're getting started with your setup this year. Um, I use deep boxes only for brood. So I don't need to use nine frames in a 10 frame box. So I put the full 10 in there. Now let me explain that too, because if it's a brood box and you put 10 frames in it, you've got more area for more brood. Um, and so there's no advantage to putting 9 frames in a 10 frame box if it's your brood box now the other thing is uh, the problem about not being able to pull your frames apart without rolling the bees what does he mean by that? well when you're pulling your if you pull a frame up and out I did this by the way there's a a video that shows you how to do an inspection and I'll link it down in the video description and even though it's a horizontal hive I explained that But you want to always pull your frame, your first frame, out to the side then up and hang it on the side of the hive or put it in a hive butler or somewhere safe. Then you're pulling your frames to the side and lifting them up. The way the frames are, right next to one another. and Every time I watch someone do an inspection and uh, they've got kind of a targeted idea, They're, they're going right after the queen or where they think the queen is because there's a big cluster of bees right there in that part. And it's likely the queen could be there, which makes this even a more terrible practice. The last bee, you want to be rolling in your hive. And by rolling, we don't mean mugging them when they're going down a back alley in some big city. I'm talking about the queen is on the face of the frame of the comb. And here's the other frame right next to it. And what's the space between them? Bee space. Okay. So three-eighths of an inch right there between the frames. Now, if you're very careful and you're very good at the game um, operation and you've got steady hands, you pull it up super careful. Is that enough to make sure you're not going to roll the bees that are between? No, it isn't. And that's because the faces of these comb often are curved and contoured and they accommodate one another. So you have a curve like this, and you pull that frame straight up, which has happened. You drag the frames faces against each other and any bees that are between those get rolled. And if the queen's in there you damage your queen guess what now you're queenless so always pull your frames to the side then lift them up and out and your bees won't get mad either bees aren't happy when you're when you're rubbing frames together and rolling them around pulling them apart lifting them hanging them and you can even set up a tote like a hive butler right next to your hive keep them in order that's the other part and for the reason that i described The surface of your honeycomb is irregular even the slightest bit that's why we want the same pieces to go together as you go along so we want to number them one through ten and when you're setting up your frames for the first time you have a couple of choices we want to push all the frames together but you can push all your frames together and shove them against one side of the box leaving a gap on the other side. So I tend to push my frames towards the eastern wall because my bees start there. That's where they tend to kind of move over and start their brood because that warms earliest in the morning and so on. So then uh, then when I inspect, I'll pull them all to the other side and then after you've done your inspections, you can actually leave them pushed over to the other side and then the next time you do an inspection, you pull them the other way. But always, this is just my personal recommendation for you Push all of your frames together. You'll notice that there's a shoulder here right on the side. And so when you push your frames right up against each other, these shoulders should meet. This entire thing is designed around B space. This happens to be a drone frame and it's made by Acorn. But that space, that shoulder bump out right there is pretty standard. Push all of your frames together. So 10 frames more brewed in the deep box and uh, so i don't recommend you know i don't personally use the nine frame method but uh, the challenge of getting them back together is because of what i just described so the other thing is uh, you can take them out when you're harvesting but see we don't harvest honey from our brood frames so they just get darker and stronger and tougher and the cells are tough and fibrous and through the years so that's why they're really suited just to to have brood in And then your boxes up above should all be mediums, I would think. Now if you're really strong and you've eaten your Wheaties and all that stuff and you don't mind lifting a 70 to 80 to 90 pound box of honey that's up above shoulder height, often. uh, And if you can do that, then I guess you can use deep boxes even up there. So where some people, because they're not so physically capable, they like to use medium boxes just for honey or often medium boxes for the whole thing. And if you can't lift a deep box then medium boxes is why uh, why they're so appealing to people because they they come closer to 47 pounds when they're full of honey and a lot of people can lift that there's kind of a unisex lifting uh limit that's about 35 pounds most people say so um up to you what size boxes you use but i will always have deep boxes for my brood So I think that's about that for that question. And the next question, number four, comes from Renee from Poughkeepsie, New York. I don't know if I said that right, but Poughkeepsie, New York, maybe that's how you say it. I set up a swarm trap using comb from a recent dead out. Good idea. There were no stores in there and I set it up by my house, nowhere near my apiary and put some lemongrass oil inside. So we had temps in the 60s the last couple of days and the bees were all over it there had to be at least 50 bees checking it out is it possible that bees would already be getting ready to swarm there's some daffodils sprouting up some crocuses not much else oh you know what else is going out skunk cabbage skunk cabbage in the wetlands is a kind of a warm-blooded plant that comes up and it Creates its own little sauna for the bees and they fly in and fly out. So, a year ago, I posted a video about that showing the honeybees flying out. Uh, so, I'm, I'm going to link that down in the video description because it's a lot of fun to see it. And it also shows what the silver maple blossoms look like. So, you can see that. But here's what you should know <clears throat> no, I don't think uh, the bees here anyway, because that's New York. I don't think uh, the bees are ready to swarm because they're not building up enough. They are bringing in resources, so watch out. They're tricky. However, usually, um, and this is another reason why it's great to keep your records through the year. I don't care if you just have one hive. There's stuff that you can write down that is related to uh, the time of year. So I know that by the middle of March, I need to start watching out. Uh, because last couple of weeks of mark is is when we see the dandelions coming up so here's the thing the environment is going to respond and we know that swarms start happening when the dandelions start filling fields so you spot the I, i've seen one dandelion uh, by itself recently so it's actually when you start to see the fields filling with dandelions because that kind of is the visual indicator and mark that in your calendar because that's when the nectar flow is really coming in and that's when you could get a swarm. So why are these bees inspecting a swarm trap now? It's because weeks in advance of a swarm. The scouts are going out and they're looking for places to move into. So you will see a lot of interest and you'll see them going inside and it's fun to watch and see how long they stay inside the hive and look around. They're they're pacing off all the interior surfaces. That work was done by Dr. Thomas Tomasili and others who actually timed it and observed and watched the bees walking and they go around this way and they do that for a long time and they walk the other way and then they bring the homeowners group in and the association and they walk it off to see if it's good and then the rest of them keep going back and sometimes, this is another thing that happens, it's kind of funny, uh, people will think it's occupied because they'll see guards at the entrance and uh but they're not they're placeholders this is like you know you're trying to find a parking spot in the walmart lot i don't go there because there's people there but i mean i've heard of people going to walmart and they see a parking one parking spot open on the next row and they'll push somebody out of the car to go stand in that spot while you drive around and come back until you can get in there so nobody else takes it while you're driving the loop around the parking lot those guard bees at the entrance of your swarm trap are there keeping other scouts from scouting it for their own colonies for their own hives so it's very interesting the damn dynamic that goes on there but also this is a tie-in because for those of you who are hoping to catch swarms this year um i really hope that you set your traps out well in advance because even though and it's funny too why wouldn't the bees when they swarm out of a hive when the queen's leaving the existing queen uh why do they always go to a bivouac they always go and just hang on a tree branch or somewhere uh, intermediate to that while the scouts continue to try to influence the rest of the bees in that cluster uh, that the spot that they have picked is the best one and that's part of the honeybee democracy which is a fantastic book if you don't have that already but uh, of course they go to the places that they've already scouted that they already know are good and uh, they keep coming back and then you'll actually see waggle dance is occurring on the surface of the cluster the bivouac so that's their intermediate location and then when you see a lot of them giving the same dance and it's very it's interesting and it's fun if you're teaching kids and things like that teach your kids to see the details of look at the waggle dance it does this kind of figure eight so it goes left and it waggles a little bit turns around to the right waggles a little bit goes left blah blah So it does this figure eight and it keeps rotating clockwise, counterclockwise, clockwise, counterclockwise. So great teaching tool for kids. The other thing is, is this bee here doing the same dance in the same cycles as this bee over here? And if they're different, we have conflicting information. So again, it's great to teach kids or beginning beekeepers to be keen on what information are they giving. And now based on the position of the sun, what direction do you think that scout wants them to go? So there's lots of teaching opportunity there, but it turns into a flash mob. So once the bees, because keep in mind, they're communicating this information to thousands of bees in a bivouac. So when they really have decided on a location that they're going to go to, you'll see those waggle dances, identical dances occurring all over the face of that cluster in all directions. It's a lot of fun to see, and then you know that their departure is imminent. So if you want to stop that, That's when you better bag those bees. Don't count on them going into your uh, swarm trap. Uh, Because again, the ones that are going into your swarm trap could be coming from somewhere else entirely. While I'm on that subject, get your swarm traps out. But if you catch swarms from somewhere else, consider setting up a satellite bee yard in someone else's yard, someone else's property, or well away from your own apiary until you know the disposition and health of the colony that you've collected and moved in. For those of you who are just starting out you want to catch your first swarm, that's also a great time to put the word out, contact your local uh, volunteer fire department, call the 911 center, don't call 911, use their non-emergency number, let them know you're a beekeeper, you're prepared to collect swarms, uh, wherever people find them, and then tell them the geo area that you're available to cover and give them your phone number. Uh, If you don't already belong to a beekeepers association, get in touch with one of those and uh, join the club share what you know and learn what you don't and then that way you can also get on their swarm list and then you'll get those calls and you can go get free bees. and if you're not comfortable collecting a swarm and you're just trying to start out in beekeeping um, make sure that other people who are beekeepers people like me i'm not suggesting that you contact me i already have 10 people that i'm taking care of so contact them let them know you'd like to start with bees maybe you lost all your bees over the winter it's your first winter or something and uh, make sure that you get the first swarm of the year those prime swarms can be huge and so the experienced beekeeper can go with you you bring your hive butler tote whatever you've got uh, which is much easier than bringing your bee box because i get nothing from hive butler to recommend that but i'm telling you that You can put a few frames in that hive butler tote, they have that screened top, and you can go to wherever the swarm is, shake them right into that box, close it up, and you're on your way. And if it's on a tree branch hanging down, sometimes there'll be a, a bush or tree branch and the entire cluster is on a single branch. That is the easiest method for collecting those bees. You set that tote underneath get another tote if you don't have a hive butler tote just get a nice big deep tote but a translucent tote is a huge advantage because you can see what's going on in it and see where the bees are and then you can make your own holes in it to make sure that they can breathe so for those of you who are looking for making your own swarm kit i'm just thinking about it right now you don't have a hive butler tote get a heavy duty tote pull make sure the lids are secure and cut out little sections and um use a heat gun or something to melt stainless steel screen after you cut out these holes in it so you've got a screen top that's actually a very handy thing to have because then what you can do is you cut the whole branch and put the whole branch right in the top, put the lid on it and off you go. You don't smoke them. Smoking swarms is something I never recommend in the first place. If you do anything to them to try to keep them on that branch where they are squirt them with some one-to-one sugar syrup And this is one of the things that I think Honey Bee Healthy is really good for. Uh, Add a little Honey Bee Healthy to your sugar syrup and that will be part of your Swarm Kit, your Spraying Swarm Kit for the full 2023 Swarm Season. It will not spoil. So that's a recommendation for that. And you just drop them right into your tote, put that tote in your car and off you go. You don't have to worry about strapping up a hive, making sure the bottom board doesn't move, putting a screen guard over the entrance and all that other stuff. Now when you get back to your apiary where your beehive is sitting and waiting, now we can get all of those bees to move out of that tote into that hive by not dumping all of them into it because they're on a tree branch. So we take the lid off the hive, inner lid off the hive, pull some frames out, shake some of those bees in there, put the inner cover back on, put the outer cover back on and make sure that your entrance reducer is open and put that tote whatever it is hive butler tote whatever kind it is here's the landing board of the hive that you just shook those bees into make sure the lip of that tote is in direct contact with that landing board and once those bees inside there even though your queen may be down in this box still they will follow each other right into that hive because it's any port in a storm it is a cavity that's sized right for them and they'll move into it try it what do you have to lose They're freebies to begin with so <clears throat> no it means they're scouting i threw in a lot of extra information there for fun but yeah they're scouting everything by the way it's also a good time tell your neighbors inspect the exterior of your house and make sure you don't have openings into the soffit and uh, old walls conduit that uh, goes into your house from your air conditioning unit, stuff like that, power drops. Uh, invite your neighbors and people to check out the exterior of their homes and make sure that they're tucking everything up, closing everything up. Tell them it's because you don't want wasps to move in. But the truth is you don't wanna be the beekeeper that's nearby, that your bees swarm and move into your neighbor's wall. They will likely blame you for that. Question number five comes from Shauna from South Dakota. If I have winter kills, do the mites stay attached to the bees i know the mites will die if all the bees die but could not find any info on if the mites stay attached it seems to me that if the bee dies first the mite would move off looking for a new host i ask this because i want to know if a mite wash on the bee would show so here's the thing and it is a great way to to practice mite watches on dead bees from dead outs and things like that but and the mites that's the beauty of it thank goodness that uh, if it happens in winter and it's a dead out while the weather is really cold we don't have a robbing risk right then let me describe in basic terms uh what happens when you've gone queenless which is usually what happens and why they're starving or you've gone queenless or you had an enormous mite load to begin with. So let's go back into last fall. And sometimes when people are doing mite checks, they'll say, man, in August, I was getting like two or three out of 300 bees. So two or three Varroa Destructor mites out of 300 bees, which sounded okay. And then they get into late September, free kicks and grins, they do a late season mite wash, and then they have 20 or 30. now what can happen is a couple of things one is they're robbing out a colony that's dying and they're overwhelmed with mites and the robbing bees bring those mites home with them the other thing is that as we get uh, into october your bees uh, are being reduced so your numbers are going down which means fewer hosts for the mites that are in that colony which means more mites per host in your brood area so they're you know, we have a hundred bees for mites to be supported on. And let's say 20 of them have mites on them, but then we drop to 70 and then there's more mites, fewer bees and the mites are reproducing and whatever brood is left. That's why the brood gets really pressured and why we need to have more mite control before we get into that time of year. Now, let's say they're dying out as described here. Let's say they're starving. Queen's gone. The mites can't go anywhere. There's no foraging happening. It's wintertime. So this is what's really terrible about what's going on inside the hive. Bees are dying from attrition. So the foragers that were left over at the end of the year, they're still in the hive that are performing their duties as the mantle of the winter cluster. Uh, They're using their bodies to warm those that are in the middle of the cluster and they're expiring. They're the ones with the tattered wings, they're older and everything else. And what happens is as their numbers decline, other bees that are inside that colony, uh the younger bees are taking their position and taking their place and that's why the numbers dwindle as those numbers dwindle any varroa destructor mites that are inside that hive concentrate themselves on whatever brood is being produced now we know here in the state of pennsylvania <clears throat> we go to almost no brood at uh, the end of november first week of december which means the mites that are there are ferretting which means they're moving around which is now the dispersal phase so now your queen going into December and they're using these fat-bodied winter bees to provide resources so they can start brooding up even though they don't have any new pollen coming into the hive so what happens when they start laying eggs and you have brood inside the hive any mites that escaped your treatments any mites that the bees do not groom off on their own, if you've got these mite-resistant stock, uh, they will be going after every cell that uh, has developing larvae in it now. They'll move into that at the last minute, just before the cells get capped and go into the pupa state. That's when the mites that are on the abdomens of your nice nurse bees eating their resources, they're getting liposuction. That's what it seems like. They're consuming the fat body stores all that great nutrition that's in their stomachs that lines them all of that extra fat is being fed upon by the varroa destructor mite it's disgusting now the numbers dwindle let's say you didn't have a queen so we're not laying any eggs so that means there's no brood unless you have a laying worker and so if you had a laying worker then same thing happens now we have reproductive material once they start producing their drones in the winter time which no other colonies would generally be doing up here in this part of the country so now they will all converge on those uh, laying worker um, pupa and they'll be feeding on them plus they're feeding on those workers so now the mite numbers increase per bee so as the bee numbers dwindle it seems to be more mites per bee right so now they would be, and this is where I think some people get those terrible pictures. I have never seen a honeybee with more than one mite on it. But we've seen those pictures, those alarming pictures that have Varroa mites all over the abdomen, three or four of them on the thorax. They're just all over that bee. Now I have to think that's a lab environment or something because they really are stressing those bees with the Varroa mites, who knows what's going on. But we know that the Varroa mite in the absence of a bee is only good for five days max some other studies said they got them to go up to nine days so regardless of how long a varroa destructor mite lives without its host we know that when the host dies or is even really sick and not able to provide resources for the mite the mite moves on to a healthier resource so the healthier resource would you know their preference would be reproductive material that uh that's what they use the developing pupa for. But now we've only got a laying worker and uh, now there's no more reproduction happening. Now they're killing your bees. Now, where are the mites? This is why if you do a mite wash, you might get a few, but it doesn't really indicate what's going on. And so here again, I'm gonna go back to what I talked about last week and where I'm headed. This is the future of my hive designs uh, throughout my apiary. I want screened bottom boards i want enclosed bottom boards below the screen i want trays or inserts trays are my preference that we can pull out just as i did over the last week i pulled trays each of my observation hives has a removable insert so i can pull it out and see what the mites are on there because the mites without a host will eventually die and they'll try to roam And of course they end up on your bottom board they end up on your insert or on your tray and uh, because they do they leave the bees there's no incentive for them to stay on the body of a bee and they hope to find another host but they can't go anywhere they can't fly Uh, they need another bee that's why robbing is critical you need to close up a dead hive so that uh, because if it just died out or if they're really weak and they're going to die out for sure you need to prevent other bees when a warm day comes along from robbing them out because when they go in to rob them out guess who's jumping all over them those surviving mites and they start feeding immediately on the abdomen of those foragers until they get back to the hive then they scoot onto the abdomen of the nurse bees in that hive because that's where the best nutrition is for the destructor mites so given the choice they only leave a bee for another bee if the bee is dying they'll leave it and then of course I've found them moving over the surface of comb before in uh, a hive that had brood disease so it was a a sick hive so the bees were off the bodies or the varroa destructor mites were off the bodies of the bees and roaming the surface of the comb trying to get onto the body of another bee and the comb that they prefer that you find them most on is of course your brood comb because it smells like brood and they everything is they're blind so everything is sensory for the mite so but can you do mite washes yes will it be accurate no because the bees are all dead but uh and it was very good information for me to look at my not to brag but to look at my observation hives and uh so these inserts have been in for several weeks and when I pulled them out only one hive had two dead mites on uh the insert so the other two had no dead mites on the inserts. so that's fantastic news because at least that pressure is not being applied to my bees so I hope that answered the question I really would love to talk to somebody like uh, you know Dr David Pack who is a Varroa mite expert or Dr Samuel Ramsey who is a Varroa mite expert but I think the answer is going to be pretty much the same The questions that I have for them, if any of you happen to know them, or if one of you happens to be watching Dr. Peck or Dr. Ramsey, what is the low-end temperature that a mite can handle? Because once a colony dies out in the wintertime, the temperature drops pretty fast. We know that the varroa destructor mite can't handle temperatures as high as honeybees can, Um, but I don't know what the low-end extremity is, like how good is a mite on its own, and how sensitive is it to really cold weather. Question number six comes from Joel, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I have a question about using the green drone frames for IPMs. That's a frame I already showed here, Integrated Pest Management. I seem to remember that we're supposed to use them on the outside of the brood box. By the outside of the brood box, we mean one of the end positions. However, one of my hives seems to shift all the brood area to the side, i.e. frames one through five and the middle frames four to five don't seem to have much brood as frames one and two. So here's the thing, and I'm just going to take a wild guess. When they fill the brood to one side, I'll bet you it is the eastern side or the south side, depending on how your hive is configured. They like to move towards the southeast side of your hive box. So they don't seem to have as much, brood one and two. That being the case, should I put a drone frame in position one and move the brood over? Or would you please talk me through this as far as timing or installing the green frames? Okay. This is this is an easy answer, but it's a good one for beginning beekeepers. First of all, I don't even if you're a beginning beekeeper, brand new, if this is your first year, I don't even recommend you use them. Don't even why bother? If you have a big colony and you think you are wanting to practice integrated pest management, the reason I say for the first year beekeeper don't even try, most of the colonies don't build up big enough to really have a sizable drone population. Which colonies build the most drones? Well, we know a failing colony would do it. So if you're queenless, that means you're not inspecting your colony frequently enough to know that they're queenless so that you can fix that before it becomes a laying worker problem. So you better be inspecting your hives every three um, weeks or less. So two to three weeks because that's how long it takes, as I described earlier, for a worker to activate her ovaries and become a laying worker. So that means you've not looked for eggs in three weeks and you've been queenless long enough for that to go bad. Now the other side of that is a colony that's real strong, that's, that's booming. They, when they have a lot of surplus resources and a lot of surplus foragers and workers, that's when they start to build the drone cells and that's when they start filling those cells with uh, drones up to 20%. So two out of 10 frames could be drones. So the question is, if this is all the way first position, now we've got 10 frames all the way through here, and if all the brood is building over here and there's a bunch of empty frames here, and then this frame is on the end and they're not doing anything with it, should this be moved closer to the brood so that they will build drone, drone comb on it, and then lay drone eggs, you really can't accelerate that. So my recommendation is leave this in the outside position. And I also recommend just using one. There's no reason to put two in there, although 20%, two out of 10, could be used in your hive. And they will start to draw a comb as they expand in that direction. And I say, let your colony grow into that position rather than trying to force them to build drone comb right there. Because I think it's a much better planning deal for you to kind of follow what they do when they're left to themselves. When they have nothing but, um, let's say, no foundation in the frames that you put in there. They don't tend to put uh, full frames of drones right next to their main brood area. It's after they've grown out a while and then they're always on the outskirts of it. So they also sometimes build drone cells between frames. So if you've got a super up above, you've got these gaps in between, bottoms of the frames from up above, top of the frame from down below, you'll see larger cells there, and they often grow uh, drones there too. They raise those. So I don't recommend moving it. I would just let the colony grow into it. And then the reason it's used for integrated pest management, which is another reason why I think beginners should not do it, uh, is because you have a timeline you have to follow once they've capped and are in the pupa state on your drone frames now it's not the end of the world if you forget and uh, don't pull them out before they emerge but if your point is to get your varroa mites to move their nursery into that green frame and then those are capped once they're capped that's the time to pull it and you pull it you can put it in the freezer you can pull it and you can uncap them if you've got chickens or some someone even told me that they're wild birds so um and birds are are habitual when it comes to their feeding if you've got wild birds that fly down and will actually eat the the pupa off of your frame i think that's that's a pretty cool trick too why not feed the wild birds i've never seen that happen I think it's a great practice if you do it, but we have chickens, and once chickens see another chicken eating something, they all run up and start eating it. And then chickens, of course, are educated easily. You can sprinkle, so you can lay your frames. This is how to get your chickens, for those of you who are thinking about it. Chickens see something new, they don't run up right away and start eating it, unless you've, you've got super smart chickens or something else. Chickens like to wait to see what other chickens do, and if that chicken doesn't die, they'll do it too so here's your let's say this is full of capped drone brood or it's eighty percent capped drone brood eighty percent go ahead and pull it and it's likely that they may do one side and the other side might not have it but you'll be getting rid of a couple of thousand drones here uh, that have varroa destructor mite reproduction going on under those cappings how do you get your chickens to eat them for the first time you set it out there Get some bricks or something. You can put it right on the ground if you want to. I'd rather not, but uh, just put some bricks out. Lay this on the bricks, and then how do we get our chickens to start uh, pecking at this? You sprinkle chicken feed on it. So if you've got scratch grains and stuff that your chickens already love when they recognize it, sprinkle that right over the top of it. And then when they're pecking at that with their beaks, they're going to make mistakes. And they're going to poke holes in that, and they are go, "Whoa, what? What's that?" And then they figure out, "Oh, look!" And then one of them pulls out. A Puba and runs away with it because for some reason When they find something new like that the chicken that gets a hold of it first runs off When they could just eat it right there But instead they hold it in their beak and they run around like they don't want anybody to take it away from them And then they all chase each other all over the place and then they finally eat it and then others run back And once they start doing that they realize it's food and look how distinctive this is. It's green It's different looking from your other frames that's intentional so you don't forget that it's there but your chickens will see this green frame and come running after that and then you've got a way to get rid of it now is it necessary to run through a freezer cycle first if you're going to feed it to your chickens no what if the mites are alive on them when your chickens start eating them chickens will eat the mites that's a tiny bug to them If you've got a bunch of, uh, like, springs coming, if you're starting with chicks, chicks will love that stuff. So you can put it in your chick brooder, even, if you can teach them to eat them. Great protein for your chickens. Okay, I think I've said enough about that. Question number seven. Micah from Elk Plain, Washington. Okay, here we go. I plan on blocking the hive top vents and am wondering what would you suggest? I'm tempted to use liquid nails applying from the outside then allowing them to air out about a week before using. Okay, Um, some people are just taking, I haven't blocked mine, although let me tell you what, I'm going to do that this year because I've run my test Uh, and I got the apemay hives late in the year so the changes and the shifts that we moved and the bees that we moved into them they they started to propolize those little holes around the feeders on the top Um, there is not an option for those of you who don't know the way that there's an apemay video in fact i'm going to link that to question number seven that'll show you how the apemay hive is put together um, because I, I mentioned that, that there's vents in them and they're wide open. There's, you have no way to control that. And, uh, I understand. And there are a lot of people that go, that's really well engineered and, and they know what they're doing and they plan that out. And, uh, there are other people that are taking double bubble and they're putting it right over the inner feeders. And then they're just clamping down the lid on top of that, a single layer of this. And that is working really well for those people. Two of my APMA colonies did not make it. I already know that those are my losses for this winter now but of course you have to attribute that also to uh, the fact that they were hived late that uh, one colony was a reconfiguration in other words we pulled all the wooden boxes away and we replaced them with the boxes those bees did not make it and uh, so I'm not saying that it's because the system failed it's the first year and that's a one-off for me so if if year after year they don't work um then we got something. but after talking with the owner of the apame company uh, they are going to have a lid that we can close the vents on so there you go they're making changes now what do i think about if you don't want to just put a thin layer of insulation that blocks everything because that's totally you know you're not modifying anything you're just putting a layer in there that blocks airflow and so you've eliminated the upper vent Uh, So the the part about wanting to use liquid nails, construction adhesive, if you wanted to seal those holes, I don't think personally I would use liquid nails. I would go ahead and use 100% silicon sealer, the weatherproof kind. Uh, It's totally inert once it's set, totally, you know, no smells, nothing. It's good to go once it's set. So I recommend that. And then you can seal that right up. If that's what you want to do, but you don't have to because you can just use an additional layer of insulation with that double bubble and then uh, accomplish the same task and not be uh, modifying anything. So I think it's great that the Apame company is going to make that change um, on their own. Uh, because I did think it was weird that we've got this vent on the top that we have no control over that if the beekeeper wanted to close it up, they couldn't do it. So question number eight now comes from Victor, Princess Anne, Maryland. Building a long Langstroth and have a question of concern about condensation and moisture in the hive. Using basically Dr. Leo's plans to buy wood and plywood bottoms with cover boards. Plan on a pitched roof that can be insulated and do I need vents on the bottom? Some say vent, some say no vent needed. My regular Langs have solid bottom boards and tilt to the front for excess moisture to run off. Thinking of the round adjustable dials for the holes. Okay, so for my Long Langstroth Hive, and i am gonna put links to that uh, also in the video description here for the prints. They're free to everybody to look at, use, print out, <clears throat> build your own versions. We ran a series of three two and a half inch holes down the center of the bottom. Put number eight stainless steel screen on each of those and then on the outside we had control wheels so that we could close them off have them wide open and it was interesting because the bees propolized most of those and then they left one of them open so that was interesting now i'm a fan of having a screen bottom board down there not a fan of having it open to the outside So we have a couple of options in my plans, in my drawings. You can have one uh, where it accommodates the deep frames for the long Langstroth. And then there's a two and a half inch space underneath of those frames with nothing going on under it. And then in that space, there are screens and then there are like lunch tray inserts under the screens. And that's because we can get passive Varroa mite capture that way. So the varroa you know they fall down onto the bottom they can clamber right onto another bee so when they're groomed off let's say one bee gets a really good grooming job and uh, she loses the varroa that's on her and that varroa mite falls to the bottom well it just runs right onto the body of another bee so if we have the screen on the bottom they fall through that and go into your tray that happens to be sprayed with cooking pam cooking spray or something like that and then by spraying it with a cooking spray it doesn't matter if your hive's tilted or level or anything else now if it's totally level you can put a little bit of baby oil in there and the reason i like baby oil or mineral oil is because you can see what's in it it stays crystal clear you can really look at it and see the mites and things like that if you use cooking oil it gets kind of messed up looking so anyway i'm a fan of the screens underneath not open to the outside and of course you can do your own tests do what you want you can start with the screens in the bottom see what the bees like what they don't see what they use what they don't um, but i do like as i described earlier on today when it comes to a bottom board screen bottom board enclosed with a removable tray that's my future um, for all of that but also for the long legs. Um most of the holes they sealed up one they left um, unsealed so it was interesting but uh, i think there's enough air movement in there for them. and another reason that i think this way is after talking with jeff horchoff which is mr ed and of course dirt rooster which is randy mccaffrey we talked at length about the conditions that they find when they're doing cutouts from structures that are abandoned sheds houses everything Uh, the horizontal configuration when they're between floor joists the walls the vertical um they're not chewing openings and they're not uh, having additional venting or openings and areas to drop resources out of or vent from their uh, entrances are pretty consistently single and consistently in the area of brood And uh, so that was interesting too, because my brood area was not the area where they left it open. It was past the brood and it was near where the honey was at the bottom. So we know that they seal top vent screens if they can, but uh, I think we're following the bees and their ability to ventilate just fine as long as we have a consistently located entrance. And a single entrance would be enough even with this configuration. But uh, So that's it. And the reason that, by the way, we have that extra space under the frames so if this were a black frame this is green obviously but we've left additional space beneath the frames and again um, talking with the guys that have seen well over a thousand feral colonies right so this is not just somebody who's seen 20 or 30. Uh, I don't do ripouts so I don't have the opportunity to see that but they notice that when the bees build their natural comb down and let's this is the bottom whether it's a vertical space or horizontal space didn't matter they don't bring the comb down and attach it to the interior surface they bring it down within about bee space and i think jeff said somewhere within half an inch of the bottom and uh, so we know that they're not going to attach down there so what that did is that provided you the beekeeper with extra comb if they ran extra comb down here to partially fill that space what do you think those cells will be they'll be drone cells or sometimes they'll just be honey or they'll just be extra wax And so that gives you an opportunity now to cut away the bottom when you're doing your inspections or if you're closing things up for winter and you've got a source of uh, beeswax coming out of that hive also and they keep that bottom very clean it's very interesting so i hope that uh, answers the question the other thing was you know i had several of those openings along the bottom i don't they're they're cosmetic now they really aren't of any real use to the bees so it's your call you can try it but uh, i'm a fan of screen bottom boards for the reasons that i described and then having a tray and then of course it's in an enclosed space question number nine comes from steve san antonio texas is there a time during the year that i should stop topping off my internal feeders i've heard that keeping them full discourages them from looking for other sources Also, I recently added a super to one hive when I found that all the frames in my top hive have built out comb. However, three frames have nothing in the comb. I've noticed that there is no comb being built in the super. Do I just need to be patient or is it because the bees have not filled the frames in the deep yet? So this is part of when you're a new beekeeper too, uh, sizing the colony correctly for the bees that occupy it uh don't put a whole bunch of boxes with a whole bunch of extra space above them when you're just starting with a small swarm or you've just installed a package or something like that leave that box as a single box until they fill out almost all of the frames that are there then add one box on until they've filled almost all of those frames and then add one after that and so on now the part about feeding Uh, When should you consistently feed now we're talking about San Antonio, Texas because we wouldn't be feeding liquids here at all but uh, Here's the thing if you're putting on supers if there's any part of that hive that you plan to harvest the honey from Do not feed sugar syrup Do not make sugar syrup available outside of your apiary either if any of your hives the supers on that are going to be used for human consumption so um during periods of dearth i understand there are some areas that get extended periods of dearth so if it's a time of year when your bees are just surviving and you know that you're not going to put honey supers on for that period in other words they're off and you have a nectar flow that happens in late august or something then during july you could feed the sugar syrup and it's true they won't take it if they don't need it also the weakest colonies don't tend to take very much syrup and they're the ones that need it the most. So that's a judgment call based on where you live and whether the climate dries up. And for those of you that are wondering, that are thinking about beekeeping for the first time this year, I highly recommend you go to a website and it's called beescape.org, B-E-E-S-C-A-P-E.org. Go to that and then you can see by typing in your address information uh if you have a dearth and when it's going to be historically and I know that we're in a state of profound climate shift around the country places that never get snow and sleet Hollywood California this morning they showed the Hollywood sign with sleet falling all over it so we have a weird weather pattern right now places that should be cold are warm places that should be cold or should be warm are cold. And uh, they're getting heavy rainfall in desert regions and things like that so uh, we have some weird stuff going on but you can look at beescape to find out uh, what kind of pesticide loads are being used in your area whether there's a dearth whether or not the environment supports your swarms in other words if you are going to practice Darwinian beekeeping or something like that and your intent is to let your bees swarm and you live in a rural area where that wouldn't matter don't recommend it if you're living in suburbia or if you have neighbors all over but um you'll find out if there's a dearth where you need to keep an eye on your bees if they get super light you may have to feed them and uh, at that point I do recommend open feeding near your apiary and that's because uh, if you're in a dearth period this is where a small colony of bees that are not under your direct observation uh, can be quickly robbed out by other bees because they're all in the same situation so it's my thinking that if you put out uh, your sugar syrup feeders and things like that during those periods of profound dearth, that you're drawing off the foragers and getting them away from your apiary. I mean as far away as you can put that feeder. If it's 110, 120 yards from your apiary, all the better. Here's the problem. You put that because it's convenient and let's say you're one of these people that has your beehive on a patio right behind your house. and You decide because you want to watch them that you put your sugar syrup on the you know picnic table right next to your beehive and it's great to see them feed and it's very fulfilling it's kind of like having a bird feeder you like all the birds to come you get to see them feed and then you're filling it up and wow they're taking a gallon a day or something here's the problem if they ever run out of that the bees that are coming to that feeder could be coming from all over the place now the feed's gone where do they go they start scouring the immediate area and if your beehive is there they put pressure on that beehive as a small colony it gets overwhelmed and then they're robbing it and once they get in and get a tiny taste of any of the resources in there it's an unstoppable mob so do not feed inside your own apiary now if you want to be 100 sure that only your bees are getting the sugar syrup that you want to feed yes feed them inside on top of your feeder shim and uh, i highly recommend the insulated inner covers they have a hole in the middle and you can put so it's warm weather period this would be a fantastic feeder inside the hive in the warm months holds a whole gallon and that's by be smart okay moving on so that's the end of question nine And keeping the syrup on doesn't guarantee that they'll build new comb because they also have to be in production they also have to the bees that are missing their queen that are not healthy that are not in a state of increase do not invest in infrastructure so they're not working on beeswax they're not uh, making new comb they're not making plans to expand when their current situation is not good also if they're making preparations to swarm they don't do a lot of production inside when it comes to beeswax so all things to think about question number 10 comes from hannah somerset ohio i recently had to move my beehives not my choice the landing board used to be in the sun in the majority of the day i've noticed that it rarely is now i've noticed the bees don't really come out as much as before should i move my hives facing the sun again or does it matter seems like the bees aren't out as much but it is still february Okay, I have my beehives facing every direction except one. So I have east facing hives, south facing hives, north facing hives, but none that are facing to the west. Why do I have no hives facing west where the sun sets? Because that's where the prevailing winds are coming out of most of the year. So I don't face landing boards where the blasting wind, like right now we have horizontal snow. It would be blasting right into the hive so now with that aside does the north facing landing board do better than the south facing landing board or is it vice versa south facing and east facing landing boards do better and that's I've had that configuration and I've had them facing different directions for well since 2006 so why do I still keep them that way so I can show people the difference they still make it they just don't do as well I think I have one area that's doomed because the bees tend to not do very well next to one particular spruce tree but I think that's because it keeps them in the shade all winter long so north facing is not as good as south facing south facing gets winter sun winter sun means that it melts the snow and stuff off warms the front first gets the bees to inspect the entrance first and they're flying earlier than those that are in insulated hives and those that are in hives that have landing ports facing other directions. So yeah, I think it makes a difference. South by Southeast is the best. Question number 11, Nate from Fredericksburg, Virginia it says, thank you for sharing your knowledge. I'm considering beekeeping, supposedly A bee's first defense mechanism is to attack an invader's face and that they attack dark complexion surfaces first. I'm African-American with very dark skin. Have there been any studies that might suggest bees are more aggressive towards dark complected people? Okay, I can answer that easily. Um, For one, it's texture over color. So for example, because I bring black equipment out, I have bee suits that are camouflage. We have a lot of different colors. And here's another thing that I want you to think about, uh, in Africa, there are a bunch of beekeepers there and they're not being attacked by their bees. In fact, the ones that I've seen, the groups that I've seen keeping bees there, uh, they don't even have bee suits half the time. Some of them have veils, barely, and, uh, they're keeping top bar style hives. And, uh, so, All the rules that apply are really towards behavior towards the bees how roughly you manage your hives and don't wear anything that has black and long hair so like a bear so if a bear were showing up it's black but it has no hair let's say they wouldn't pay attention to it but when it has long hair and it's black that's the combination so texture over color if that makes sense also for example i have video equipment that i video of the bees with and i went and looked into an africanized colony of bees and they came right out and they were very defensive now the all the camera equipment that i carry in fact all my photo gear is black the tripods are black the lenses the camera bodies everything is black what they went after was the what we call a dead cat which is a, a wind muff that goes over your microphones they were all over it which created a terrible audio situation for me but they ignored the rest of it so what I'm saying is texture not color I think you're perfectly fine to keep bees in fact I hope you will keep us posted but unless you've got really long hair or you plan on wearing really fuzzy clothes you're going to be fine and they do go after high contrast areas which is why they kind of go after our faces they go after our eyes because that's a high contrast area but I highly recommend that people wear veils at least when they're working their bees And uh, have a full bee suit ready to go but your behavior around the bees counts far more than the color of your skin or the color of the outfit that you're wearing so that's it for today and we're gonna move into the shout out a lot of people are going to be doing uh, they're gonna be doing autopsies on their bees necropsy whatever you want to call it Um, they're gonna have some dead outs you're gonna have questions and uh, people tend to have a hard time communicating what they're looking at and kind of diagnosing what's wrong. And this is a great time where your bee mentor, if you've got one, hopefully could come over and help you go through it, and uh, you get rid of those bees. But here's the thing. My shout out today is for the Bee Informed Partnership. It's a nonprofit organization that does testing, establishes best beekeeping practices, and also publishes helpful information so here's the thing there's going to be a link down in the video description and it's called diagnosing brood diseases and because it's very clear I think they have three or four presenters in this video this video is over an hour so get your cup of coffee your hot chocolate or whatever and buckle down with your notepad because it's a video that you probably want to save and when you think you have a brood condition that you don't really understand what's going on take out your cell phone and get the best quality pictures of the brood that you can that you can find uh that you can that you can make with your camera and that way you can send it out to people uh, to help you with diagnosing if there's any brood left in it you want to look at that the condition of the caps you know if there's residue if there's little crystalline specks and things on it all of that stuff will be answered so follow that link please tell them i said hello and uh, of course uh, watch the video and get up to speed on what you're looking at when it comes to brood disorders Which one of the most common things I think that people run into in the spring is uh, chalk brood. So they just see white chalky stuff and they don't really understand what they're looking at when you're a new beekeeper. Also chalk brood is something that is very easily taken care of. It's usually when the colony got very small, they could not uh, control the climate inside the hive. There's a lot of dampness when the bees expired or near expiration and they've got a space that's just much too big for them. You can requeen there's a lot of stuff to do but the good thing about this video that i'm linking it doesn't just show the problems we talk about how to take care of it once you have that issue so that's the shout out the other thing is i get a lot of questions about uh, microplastics plastics and beehives isn't it terrible there's plastic foundation there are one piece plastic frames like these um i have flow hives which have the plastic uh activated frames that open and drain the honey out and so on Uh, but I just listened to um, a seminar about that and it was really interesting and something I would not thought of. The microplastics getting into the bee itself, getting into its digestive system, getting into the honey um, is not coming from those big pieces of plastic that compose hives. it's coming from which is really interesting is synthetic fibers that are in people's clothing so synthetics that are in um, filters that people are often using to run their beeswax and honey through Uh, so they're synthetic they're plastic so uh, it got me thinking because maybe we should be using if you're the kind of beekeeper that wants to filter tiny chunks and things out of your hives you have an option when you're looking at that stuff to get uh, a synthetic screen, which seems good, or you can get stainless steel. So knowing that microplastics could be a part of that, um, I would go with the stainless steel screens if you're going to be filtering your honey. Now here's the other part that uh, I don't have small hive beetle issues. So here's another thing. A lot of people are using Swiffer pads inside their beehives. To trap small hive beetles. And that seemed to work. Again, I don't do it because um, I don't have small hive beetles like that. But here's what you need to look into if you care. And you want to keep microplastics out of your stuff. There is no more, uh, no greater opportunity, I would think, to spread microplastics throughout your hive than to be using Swiffer synthetic dusters inside your hive now i've put them uh, in the trays underneath the hive so once they go through the screen and get stuck in the swiffer i did that one year didn't like it because it just got full of debris and i couldn't really look for mites and things like that but the bees never had access to it so if you're putting any kind of pad inside your hive and if it's made out of synthetic fibers be very careful about your selection of that stuff and determine whether that's your only solution to whatever the problem is and why you're using it. It's a synthetic fiber and it's a micro plastic fiber and then the bees have to tear it apart. Look what bees do when you put any kind of, like put the Swiffer dusters in there for example, bees chew them. Bees want them out of there. It doesn't belong in the hive and the trade off is that you would be trapping beetles but please take a deep look into that and uh, see what they're made out of see if that is made out of a bunch of very fine synthetic microfiber and if it is i'm just going to give you my personal opinion on that i would not put that in my beehive uh, knowing that those microplastics are more quickly uh, placed into the digestive stream of your honeybees so and and just it was a light bulb moment when i was listening to that talk about what the micro plastics are how they get where they are how those tiny particles uh get formed and of course they're also airborne and there are other things where they're in the environment but those things are not under our control uh what is under our control is what we put inside the beehive so fabrics and this is another thing and this is was not a microplastic side too but People were running their filtered honey so that they could enter it in contests and they wanted to have it really clean. And someone was saying, use cheesecloth. Now I know cheesecloth is natural fiber, but uh, cheesecloth, when I was talking to a honey judge, one of the culprits is cheesecloth. So if you wanna put tiny cotton fibers in your honey, that is going to cost you points when you're getting, uh, when you're in competition, don't use cheesecloth for that use something that liberates no little linty fibrous you know pieces in so that's my fluff part for today be ready for that Um, think about what you're putting in your hive especially knowing that the bees are going to be tugging at it pulling it apart Um, it's a no for me when it comes to Swiffer Um, they're designed to mop and clean things and I had not considered what the fibers are made of or that we could have nano size Uh, fibers getting into your bees so that's it for today i hope that uh, you're making good preparations for spring and that you're not in the midst of this big storm that's working its way across our country but uh plan ahead be ready for the swarms be ready to super your hives and for those of you who are planning to get bees for the first time get yourself on that swarm recovery list and uh, get free bees. thanks for watching have a fantastic weekend